the thing is, taking the design thinking approach in and of itself shouldn't cost any more money. It's just changing how you're doing business as usual. So business as usual right now in medical education departments around the country are kind of the standard like two hour long kind of conference calls or conference meetings where you kind of throw around ideas or you throw up metrics, but there's no human centered approach. There's no residents in that room. There's no medical students in that room. Welcome to the Solving Resident Burnout podcast, created by resident Dr. Daniel Orlovich for interns, residents, fellows, and yes, programs too. Designed to discuss real barriers from the front line and offer practical solutions. No stuffiness, no whining, no mandatory lectures, no glazing over the real issues, no wellness guru talk, just a casual conversation about real issues affecting residents and practical solutions. Today's guest is Dr. Mimi Smith. Have you ever thought to yourself, maybe there's a better way to bring up issues in residency, particularly around wellness? Maybe it doesn't involve a lot of money. Maybe we can copy ideas and inspiration from other businesses, such as business and technology. And you'll really enjoy this episode. It centers around design thinking. Dr. Mimi Smith is an intern at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Following internship, she'll join the Dermatology Residency Program at the University of California, Davis. She is a graduate of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Prior to medical school, she worked in the private sector, first as a strategy analyst at Deloitte Consulting and then as a data associate at ZocDoc. She's passionate about applying design thinking to optimize clinical care and research, as well as to innovate new approaches to physician well-being. Her hobbies include trying to keep orchids alive, very amateur wine tasting, and chasing her dog Bleeker around the parks of New York. She encourages, and I definitely recommend, trying to browse online. Get your finger on the pulse of design thinking in healthcare and think about ways to apply it to your career as a physician, as well as thinking about ways that it affects your personal well-being. She recommended a handful of resources, which I'll put below in the show notes. And you had the idea of approaching resident wellness from a design perspective right? and design thinking. So for the listeners out there who are unfamiliar with that term, what exactly is design thinking? Yeah. So design thinking is actually an approach to innovation that started in the business sector. It really took off in the early 1980s. A design firm called IDEO, their founder, is one of the pioneers in this field. And the idea is that when companies, or in our case, residency programs, medical schools, but when companies have what is called a wicked problem, that is a problem that's either kind of nebulous or vague in its nature, or highly complicated. When there is such a problem, how do you design solutions for that problem? And so the thing that makes design thinking different is it's incredibly human-centered. So you start on the premise of, how does this problem affect the user? So for companies, that's usually a client. Whereas for us as medical students, that's our medical school that we're paying to be at. And for residents, it's their residency programs that they've ranked and chosen and are giving their blood, sweat, and tears for not very much money for their training. And so the way that I think design thinking applies to this, to the problem of kind of medical student, resident, fellow, physician burnout, 
is this is an incredibly complicated problem. And in certain ways, it's also vague and nebulous. And I think as a medical community, we've had a hard time defining what are the factors that are leading to burnout. And that makes it really hard to develop solutions. And the way that it's happening right now is that medical schools and residency programs, the deans and the program directors, they're designing what they think are solutions from the top down. It's the people in the administration looking down and deciding kind of what our challenges and problems are and prescribing solutions that they hope stick and are rarely changed. Whereas a design thinking approach would be those same deans and program directors coming to us, the users, coming to the medical students and the residents, sitting a broad swath of us down at a table or better yet in a conference room where people can stand up, be active, put up post-its, and we tell them what our challenges are. And we kind of define the problem together and then start kind of ideating around solutions. And another key foundation of design thinking is coming up with solutions without any judgment or boundaries. So it's kind of like the sky is the limit. So you come up with the best ideas possible, and then you get realistic in terms of the implementation by working together. So kind of the overall arc of this design thinking process is meeting the user where they're at, putting the user at the steering wheel of developing solutions, ideating and iterating, so coming up with ideas, but then sometimes going back to the drawing board and maybe rescoping the problem until you come up with kind of a solution that fits everybody's needs in the most optimal way and can be implemented, but also is flexible enough that if more problems come up or the environment changes, it can be adapted. So all of that is to say that I think that this is an approach to innovative ways to deal with the problem of medical student, resident, physician burnout in a way that hasn't been thought of before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well said, very comprehensive. Talk to me a little bit more kind of how you see how like the approach to burnout is conceptualized now, because obviously design thinking, like you said, it's innovative. It's kind of some places are doing it, many are not. So kind of in your words, how do you see the current approach? You kind of mentioned the top-down approach, delivering solutions no one voted on. So kind of elaborate more on that for us. Yeah. So I feel like the current landscape, and maybe this is me being a little bit cynical, but the current landscape is very reactionary. So when a resident drops out of a program or when a medical student drops out of school or the absolute worst end of that spectrum, when, when there is a suicide, which is something that we have seen happening at medical schools and in residency programs. And so when these kind of endpoints of burnout happen, then the administration scramble to come up with solutions rather than being preventive about it. And so the way that I could see this happening kind of in action is say quarterly, the administration or the program directors sit down with a representative group of their users of medical students or trainees, and they talk about what new problems there are, and they start thinking together about solutions, and then they implement those solutions, and then the next quarter they assess, is it working? Are the residents feeling better supported? Are the medical students kind of thriving and keeping up with their coursework better than they were before? So rather than 
once a bad thing happens with respect to our well-being, then kind of putting band-aids on it instead, really being preventative about it and strengthening us against those endpoints. Mm-hmm. No, I like it. It makes sense. It seems like the responsibility of the program is to listen, to create a space, yeah. create time, listen and kind of connect those ideas from the students or the residents or the fellows, and then connect those with people who can make it happen. What's the kind of responsibility of the other side of the table, the residents, the med students, the fellows, in terms of these type of sessions? Yeah, no, so that's that's really important. The first thing that I think about is keeping eyes open as to the diversity of who you're bringing to the table. So it's really hard to go through a design thinking cycle with you know, all 140 students from the medical school class. Like that just, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be productive. So really, like, is there a way to kind of thoughtfully pick, say, this is random, but say 10 students to be sitting around that table? And how can you make sure that those 10 students kind of adequately represent the diversity across your student body? So diversity might be the color of their skin. It might be the language that is their first language. It might be their socioeconomic situation. It might be their family circumstances. And if they have a family of their own, all these things that kind of carry into residency as well, and that certainly can impact wellness. And so I think our first responsibility is that, making sure that the people who we put in front to represent us are truly representative of kind of our population. And then I think the second thing after that would be being kind of realistic. And this this is something that we've talked about before. So something that I don't think works in these circumstances is complaining and is kind of boycotting things without any conversation and without any sort of negotiation with the people who kind of hold the powers of the purse, if you will. And so I think what can happen is medical students and residents and fellows, they can be so frustrated and they've been brought to such an endpoint and they're physically tired and tapped out. And so then when they approach the administration with their concerns about their problems, it can not be productive sometimes because it just kind of can derail into a diatribe about everything, you know, that is going on rather than focusing on specific issues and really kind of defining that problem that they want to solve. So I think that's a challenge that could be poised to that representative group. Basically, where, okay, like these are all the problems. We're very frustrated, but rather than like coming in with like a litany of everything that's wrong and not being organized about it, how can we be organized about it and know that the administration might push back, but then be able to logically respond? So I think those are the kind of the two interconnected main things. Yeah, no, I love it too, because I kind of, when I was thinking about the wellness approach, Sometimes, like, I imagine getting everyone in the room and saying, like you're saying, let's put up the post-it notes, bring up your concerns. But I'm sure you've been in situations, I've been in situations where it just turns into a big, you know, complaining fest. Right. And at first, my reaction was to push back and be like, no, let's focus on solutions. But I've come to kind of embrace this idea that, like, people need to get things off their chest. It yeah. serves a purpose. but there needs to be a separate kind of space for that, not when maybe the the program directors or the assistant PDs or the, the GME people are there. So I think it's interesting. It's like, can we let people get things off their chest? Can we go ahead and kind of like find themes and repeating like motifs? And then 
we go to the program directors with a little bit, like you said, more rational, logical approach to say, this is kind of what's, what we feel needs to be done and this, what is feasible. As yeah. Well. well, so one thing I'd say is I think maybe in a sense, we're talking about two different things because I couldn't agree more about the importance of getting these things off a person's chest. And I think about my time in my career in business before I went to medical school. And so often in companies, you see the same thing. So for example, the sales force is very disgruntled because somebody like on the operations team or on the coding team isn't doing something to enable them to get their sales. And the entire team is frustrated. And so the way it was handled in business was to have sort of a town hall. So this open forum, a space, as you say, for everyone to just get things off their chest and to kind of state very clearly and without restraint what's bothering them. And this is something where I said before, like you can't have all 140 students at the table, you can only have 10, but this is something where you can have all 140 students getting those things off their chest. Because I I totally agree. I think that release is necessary and is helpful and is healthy for the people involved. And so that's just an example of something that happens in the business world where kind of there is this focus on retaining employees and on kind of maximizing the way that the business functions, but it doesn't happen in medical education and training. And I think that that is really not a good thing. I think that by adopting things like design thinking, things like these open town hall forums that happen in the business community, we could actually improve our medical education and our training programs in a way that benefits us, certainly, but also improves the way that we operate, improves kind of how medical students do throughout their time at the school, and then therefore, you know, are more happy with what they do next, but also improves the training environment for residents and what they want to do next. So I think getting things off one's chest is incredibly important, but it's kind of a separate area from specifically designing solutions. Yeah, good point. Also, kind of tell me with your background in business, and I know we talked about this before, and you kind of alluded to it, win-win scenarios. I think sometimes when, you know, I've seen residents go in and they, quote, demand certain things that are just totally unrealistic, and the other side of the table gets it, and they're like, we can't do this, right? But I know we talked earlier, coming out from a business perspective, how do you view that in terms of like, okay, you guys want this, this is what's feasible, and here's what would be a win for you and then a win for us as well? Yeah, yeah. So I haven't gone through residency yet, but I know a lot of people who have and who are currently in it. And I think a good example here is something like duty hour restrictions. So it is this kind of program that exists, but everybody knows that it doesn't happen. And the thing is, a lot of residents are scared to actually report what their real hours are because they're scared that that's going to get somebody at top in trouble. And the deal is everybody loses in this situation. Like if that is found out, the program gets in trouble. As it is continuing to occur, the resident's quality of life is incredibly diminished. But most, most, most importantly, this can affect patient outcomes and this can lead to medical errors. And that's like a true everyone loses situation. And so I think that that's kind of an example of where you can apply these sorts of ideas and really like meet residents where they're at as far as their scheduling and like why these duty hours are being violated, the restrictions on them. and 
sit down at the table with a representative group of them again and kind of figure out a way to make it work to still have sufficient coverage, but not to be spreading these residents so thin that it could lead to medical error. Yeah. And that's that's something that I've seen. I spoke with another guy in the podcast and essentially it was around duty hours somewhat. And he said basically like when they were forcing people to break duty hours, more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, it would cost the hospital like three grand oh, just yeah. to transfer the patient. So it's like, like you said, it's not in the trainee's best interest. It's not in the program's best interest. So no one's winning from this whatsoever. It's not in the patient's best interest as well. And that's what's perplexing to me. Right. No, totally. And you just reminded me. So in my last year of medical school, I did a a visiting rotation in quality improvement at a very large hospital system and a very like well-off, well-endowed hospital system. And a lot of the conversation around quality improvement measures was actually targeted at the residents. So for example, and this is kind of in the weeds, but it definitely applies to this. So the idea of ordering platelets and when it is appropriate for a patient to need platelets. So this is kind of drawn out. These guidelines are drawn out by different associations, and it's like pretty clear in the literature what the thresholds are. But this isn't something that is taught in medical school, certainly. And then within individual hospital systems, there might be kind of variations on this that like no resident with everything else that they need to keep in mind is keeping up with this. So then what can happen is platelets are being overordered. And because a resident is told by like a nurse or an attending who isn't really looking at the actual numbers and thinking about those thresholds and those cutoffs, they just then kind of fire off the order. And platelets are very, very expensive. And so kind of this lack of education and a streamlined approach to ordering platelets is like basically losing the hospital a lot of money, like a huge amount of money annually. And so they sat residents down at the table and they tried to figure out a way to do this. And they're like, oh, is it giving you like a didactic at lunch to like teach you more about these so that at least like it's on your mind? Or is it incorporating like an e-learning module that you have to complete annually? And nobody wants another didactic. Nobody wants an e-learning module. But for the administration, they're like, oh, we've checked the box of providing that education. So this shouldn't happen anymore. But that we all know that that's not necessarily true. Like our eyes glaze over and we're just trying to like eat our first meal of the day when, when we've been rounding all morning. And so the solution that we actually came up with was a best practice alert. So a pop-up in the EHR, which again is something too that has led to fatigue and people have pop-up alert and they might just ignore it. But the difference about this pop-up is it actually prevented you from placing an order for those platelets without justification from the most recent CBC demonstrating kind of the medical need. And in order to override it, you had to reach out to a specific individual. And so, yeah, it like adds, you know, kind of an annoyance for some people who maybe they're on the night shift and they were told if platelets drop below X, a number like higher than, you know, is truly needed to transfuse, then you just order it. And that's frustrating for that person on night float who's getting that pop-up and they can't move past it, but it's the right thing. It teaches that resident what the threshold should be, and it also prevents that loss of money. So I think that that's another kind of example of without sitting the residents down at the table, the administration would have just thrown a didactic or e-module at them, and that wouldn't have achieved the same effect. Yeah. Totally the opposite of design thinking, like you're saying, that top-down right. approach. Me assuming I know what the answer is. Me assuming I know what how to communicate that to you as well. And then me saying, this is my priority. It should be your priority as well. Right. 
and like not iterating, just deciding, okay, this is the solution. And now we're going to run that didactic for the next decade, which like we've all watched those like e-modules that are like 15 <laughs> years old. And that's especially when you're not paying attention. <laughs> that's truth. Yeah, that's definitely truth. Walk me through kind of, obviously you have the business understanding, the business background. A lot of people in medicine don't. So let's say some program incorporates design thinking. They say, okay, we'd like this intervention. We just don't know like how to pitch it in terms of sheer numbers, the financial aspect. So are there people in the department? Are there people who are trained in this that you can go to and talk to them and say, hey, like this is a problem. This is what we're proposing. Could you make a spreadsheet or like give us a final calculation? Yeah. So you mean like as far as like taking the design thinking approach in general? Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, taking the design thinking approach in and of itself shouldn't cost any more money. It's just changing how you're doing business as usual. So business as usual right now in medical education departments around the country are kind of the standard like two hour long kind of conference calls or conference meetings where you kind of throw around ideas or you throw up metrics, but there's no human centered approach. There's no residents in that room. There's no medical students in that room. So if you think about it, the first step of this is getting the user again in with the steering wheel. And so it doesn't cost any money to bring in a group of medical students or to bring in a group of residents. Like they are your people. They are there. They're probably enthusiastic to come and to be a part of these conversations. So definitely from just kind of the outset, that isn't going to cost any more money. Like this process is not so complicated that it requires, say, like an outside, like hiring an outside consultancy to teach the people how to do design thinking. Like, no, absolutely not. You can Google design thinking right now, see kind of the basic framework of the approach with like incredible kind of guidance that can be taken by anyone. Anyone who's in a position in medical education or residency program have like the intellectual capacity to wrap their mind around how design thinking works. And it doesn't require you to be this like innovation guru. What it requires is for you to have a really comprehensive understanding of the user. So of your students and of your residents. So I think that it's kind of flawed thinking that there needs to be this like huge like overhaul restructuring that's going to cost money to these departments in order to kind of take this approach. And I think also it would be naive to think that overnight design thinking is going to be how we solve like every problem that comes across our desk. I don't think that that's appropriate either. I think it's about starting with the big items and the way you find out the big items are going to the users. So having sort of a focus group. So the way you kick this off is like at my medical school, what what could have been done is kind of call in a group of 10 of us who just graduated and sit down with us and say like, what were some of the challenges or frustrations that you feel led to burnout during your time at this institution? And kind of whiteboarding it and seeing what resonates with each person and having kind of an open dialogue about what those challenges were and kind of us as the users telling you what the biggest problems are and really defining the questions that need to be asked to make those problems better. And so what medical education departments can do is take the 
top problem that is defined by that group that everybody really agrees upon and apply design thinking to that problem and see how it goes and see what you think the limitations are. See if you think it's more efficient or more effective than the way that you used to design new programs or you used to address problems. And I'd be shocked if it wasn't an improvement. In every way that I've seen it implemented, it's a huge improvement of the process and the outcomes that come from it. So I don't think that there needs to be kind of a value case to be made about implementing design thinking. It's just a shift in mindset. No, I love it. And I love how you said, go to that user base and ask them what their problems are. I think, you know, when we think about like wellness and burnout, a lot of times it's framed around, you know, repeating themes, like you said, the major themes. But I'm thinking of one in particular, you know, usually it's work hours or fatigue And that's a big one for a lot of programs, right? And I remember this one program, the residents, and I'm not like making this up, there's data, it's publicly available. The residents work so few hours that they're able to moonlight and a few of their residents are clearing half a million, so about $250,000 a year. So I think like if I were to hypothetically go to that program, I don't think they would rate like hours worked as a top priority. So it would be a mistake if I led with, hey, let's talk about work hour restrictions. And then I think of some of the other residents I work with in different departments, and it's like, this would be a problem to them, right? right. Even at the same institution, maybe mm-hmm. neurosurge has separate problems from derm, from anesthesia. So I really like going to them and being like, what are your top three kind of like challenges for you at this program, at this department as well? Yeah. Totally. I mean, that's exactly it. Design thinking rejects this idea of a one-size-fits-all solution. So what we're seeing now is like the AAMC issues a statement or guidance on how something should be done in medical schools, and every medical school scrambles to get in line with that guidance so that they can say, oh, we are consistent with the new, the latest guidelines from the AAMC. But it's like, who cares? Like, who cares about these people in DC who decide what is the right way for you to run your medical school in California? Like, it doesn't make sense, yet people fall in line because that's what medical education has done for the last century. And I think that the difference in design thinking is rejecting that idea and bringing it really down to the local level and local being as kind of discreet as individual departments. You're absolutely right. There's such different challenges facing different specialty groups. Yeah. Personally, I think that's fun. It's like local, the people I see every day, the people that I work with so much, like I want to affect their changes. I don't know what's going on in like, no offense to Kansas, but in Kansas, like I don't know what those residents are dealing with there. So to start locally, I don't know. I think there's something very empowering about that. It's like, oh, we can tackle this problem. Yeah. As opposed to, I need to take care of like Medicare for all on a national level. It's like, oh boy, that's that's huge. Totally. And the really great thing about kind of bringing it down to say the department level is it actually kind of cross fertilizes innovation. So say the neurosurgery team identifies a problem that the ophthalmology team didn't even think of, but then when they see that neurosurge is working on it and they see kind of the working solutions and how they're going, they're like, oh my God, we didn't even think about that. We could really benefit from that. So there's this sort of cross fertilization pollination that can occur when rather than having like too diverse of a group of individuals in the same room trying to tackle too much, you break it down and then you just keep those channels of communication open. Yeah, totally. And that's like one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast. So people listen, 
There was one article I wrote about ENT basically gave the residents two additional hours. I don't know if it's per week or per month. Yeah. Just two additional hours. That's all they gave them. And they were like, let's see if this improves burnout and improves wellness. And it did. So Whoever, like that was in what, ENT. Do whatever they wanted. Yeah, do whatever they wanted. And yeah. they like said like, are you getting your laundry done? Are you getting the oil in your car changed? Yeah. Are you doing research activities? Are you just watching TV? Are you catching up on notes? But point being to your point about the cross fertilization and stuff like pollination, it's that's just ENT, but other programs could say, oh, yeah, totally. definitely. We're in a high demanding specialty and then totally. two hours, we can somehow work that in as well. Totally. Like if ENT can do it with their 16 hour surgeries, other departments can make it happen for sure. Exactly. Yep. Talk to me a little about obviously design thinking involves an iterative process. Some people don't have the patience for that and they want a change right now. So what's your approach to that? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of Rome wasn't built in a day. I mean, the idea of implementing like rapid change and thinking that like modular pieces that all fit together nicely and neatly and stay that way isn't true in any industry. And I think more than anything in healthcare, I mean, if the current kind of COVID situation has taught us anything, it's that the way that we've been doing things and the way that our systems have been organized up to this point isn't stable. And you really can't just rest on your laurels. And so the changes that we need to kind of prevent another COVID are going to take a really long time. It's not going to be a quick process. And usually it's not true that, oh, the longer the time it takes, kind of the more it'll be sustained and the longer it will last. I don't think that's true at all. But I do think that the length of the process, if it's representative of how many iterative cycles and of how much input you got and of how much prototyping and testing with users and going back to the drawing board, that all takes time. And so if that is how you're spending the long time developing solutions and programs, then yeah, spending more time is going to create more robust, sustainable solutions. But on the other hand, if you're spending a long time coming up with programs because you're jumping through like bureaucratic hoops or financial limitations, like that's not adding any value to the outcome or to the benefit of the programs that are created. And so I think the way, you know, somebody making a pitch to a medical department or a residency program about design thinking, you can't really phrase it as like a quick solution, a silver bullet. Like it's, it's quite the opposite of that. And that's kind of, it's totally missing the point. And so I think that it's just important to emphasize that like sustainable solutions take time to develop. Yeah. And I would say in my personal experience, just by virtue of someone listening and saying like, we are working on this and we genuinely hear your concerns. That is sometimes enough for me. It's like, okay, you get me. At least you're trying something as opposed Ooh. to like you're saying a guideline that was quickly released and now I have another module to yeah. check off. Yeah. Like, even though that's a result, it doesn't feel as good to me. Right. And that's also that's also where I mentioned earlier, like have these meetings quarterly. Don't have like one meeting a year where there's huge turnover and the people who are represented at that meeting and you're starting from ground zero every time. Instead, meet regularly, stay in close contact, see how things are going, and really you're constantly reevaluating and reassessing how well things are going. Nice. No, I love it. And then tell me a little bit, you said kind of places that are applying design thinking, they slowly develop a more robust system. And I know we've talked about this. 
But I think people have this preconceived notion of medical education is the way it is, and it's always been that way, and it always will be that way. And I think you're encouraging us to reimagine how medical education could be, and I'm certainly doing the same. You're familiar with business. I'm familiar, obviously, living in Silicon Valley. There are companies out there that do this, that treat their employees well, that are beyond belief financially successful. Why aren't we doing that in medical education? Yeah, I mean, this like flummoxes me. This is something that I have felt very strongly about. So I worked in business for about five years before I went to medical school. And I walked away from what could have been like a very like straight path, guaranteed lucrative career to pursue first a post-bac because I wasn't pre-med and then all of medical school, including a research year. And now I'm just starting my training. And so I look at peers, I grew up in Silicon Valley, and I look at peers who work at some of the companies that I'm sure you're referencing, and they did not pursue any graduate education. And yes, they work hard, but so do we. And so when I look at their incredibly wide portfolio of benefits that their companies are providing to them, of course, in addition to very healthy salaries, it really makes me wonder like, what this says about what our country values. And it really makes me wonder why medical schools and residency programs don't want to compete, don't want to somehow provide those of us who chose a career in medicine and, and to help other people, as kind of cheesy as it sounds, it is at the foundation why we all went to medical school. Why aren't we looking at these companies as kind of models of what we can do to continue to attract top talent and retain top talent? Because at these companies where there is this huge emphasis on well-being, you are retaining employees. Whereas in medicine, we're seeing huge attrition and we're seeing people leave clinical medicine or not even enter it in the first place. I have classmates, a good number of classmates, who rather than applying for residency at the end of medical school, they joined consulting firms or they joined Verily or they joined you know, different companies that were offering them a much healthier salary and better quality of life, certainly in the short term, but also in some ways in the long term. And they opted for those paths. And I think that if medical education doesn't change, we're going to see more and more of that. And I think the argument, of course, you know, the other side of that and the argument that I've heard when I've talked about that is, well, medical schools and residency programs don't have like the billions of dollars that these huge, you know, global companies have. Like, right, that's true. But a lot of the benefits that these companies are providing don't cost a ton of money. And I think back to your example of that ENT program. So actually at one company where a good number of my friends work, a, a huge, huge company that makes a lot of money, they have something called the 80-20 structure or something around that. I might have the wording wrong, but the idea is that 20% of your time, say any given day or any given week, however you want to do it, you can dedicate to whatever you want to do. And they encourage you to spend it kind of thinking about creative problems or creative kind of programs that you want to develop. And you have access to the whole rest of the company and all of those resources to kind of pursue that. And you have this carved out period of time. And I know like it's not like being in my jobs and business were like all fun and glam all the time. Absolutely not. And so I think that by having that outlet of 20% of your time 
to do something that really fires you up and to have the resources that allow you to do that, it's invigorating and it's empowering and it's recognizing like a wide variety of talents that one person can have kind of outside of their job description. And so something like that, carving out time within residency programs and within medical schools doesn't cost any money. It doesn't cost them any money, and yet it can have this profound impact on resident and medical student well-being. So I think that that's a a good example of the kind of benefits that we're talking about. Yeah, totally. I remember I was reading a book, and I thought this all started with Google, right? Yeah. thing. And then, like, I realized that Google stole it from 3M. Yeah. And this is going back, like, a hundred years. And yeah. I was like, oh my goodness, like yeah. 3M, in my opinion, is not like a sexy company, Yeah, but like they totally nailed it. And totally. then I'm thinking of my experience, like when I wanted to do the podcast, people are like, oh, you don't you care about your patients. Totally. You're like, not. Yeah. That's and I was exactly. like, no, like, like research shows that just what you said, like if you dedicate a small amount of time, 20% to a different endeavor, a hobby, an interest, an intellectual curiosity to pursue then like one is more engaged at work, burnout scores go down as well. And like the thing that like I smile about is ultimately sometimes a system benefits from that. Like I know there are numerous examples that engineers and people in business, their side projects suddenly became the main project and the flagship product for the company. And I just love that because it's saying, you know, I think there is this, when I talk to some people, they're like, oh, well, the medical residents and the medical students, they don't want to be at the hospital at all. Yeah. And I'm like, no, that's a straw man argument. We do want to be here just because we don't want to be here maybe 120% of the time. <laughs> maybe there's somewhere in the middle, right. like 20% or 15 or heck, ENT, two hours a day. If they're working 80 hours, my math is not good, but like two out of 80 hours or whatever, like that's not too much yeah. to ask for. Totally. And So like one thing that I think about as far as like their side project becoming like a main revenue earner. So this isn't something I've followed very closely, but it is something I looked into a few years ago. So if you look at the number of patent holders among medical residents and interns, meaning they obtained that patent or pursued that patent during their education, and you look at the sorts of medical devices or kind of formulations, if it's pharmaceutically related, that they came up with and what that led to, it's like remarkable. And those were kind of pioneer people who were already working 120 hours, as you say, and, you know, put another 20 on top of that to pursue these side projects. And then the enormous benefits that resulted for the medical community from that. And so if you think like, what if we opened up this space and gave this time to residents all across the country? Like you can only start to imagine the innovation that would result from that. And speaking of like not costing these departments any money, well, if somebody develops like a formulation or a medical device using the resources at an academic medical center, legally, there are some rights of that center to those profits. Oh, yeah. Like, not only are you not losing money by allocating this time for your trainees, but you actually could make a whole lot of money (laughs) by dedicating that time. Totally. And that's like VC or that's seed funding, right? Mm -hmm. And like, we can couch it as, like you said, the, the quality improvement, the QI or research. So I think it's important, like we can convey that message in terms of that quote, the other side will understand. And I totally agree. I think there's a tremendous upside as well. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Anything else, Mimi? This has been great. Anything else you'd like to share? Tell listeners 
encourage them to do? Yeah. I mean, so with respect to design thinking, maybe when I started talking about it, it sounded like bogus out of left field, but I'd actually encourage you to Google about design thinking in healthcare. So in preparing to speak with you today, because we had chatted about it, I wanted to kind of go back to my kind of preliminary interest in this and look at the articles that I had looked at. And so one that I would really recommend anyone in healthcare to look at is Tim Brown wrote about design thinking for Harvard Business Review back in 2008. And in it, he talks largely about applications of design thinking to healthcare. And he gives a really good example of how design thinking was used to improve shift changes among nurses at hospitals to reduce errors in handoff. And I think that that is something that so loudly resonates with residents and within their programs and really not only benefits patient outcomes, but improves the relationships with your colleagues, with your peers, when you have kind of a more structured system that you developed, that you were a part of creating that helps you work better as a team and ultimately improve patient care. So that's that's one piece that if you're only going to read one thing about it, I would look to that. And then if you're more interested in it, there are communities across the country. Some are called like design as a doctor and different design thinking kind of groups that have cropped up over the last decade or so. So to check it out, like where you're living and working, they might be at your institution and just like have a 10 minute conversation with those people and see what's up because you never know what it could lead to. Yeah, totally. And that led me, my kind of horror Ray kind of introduction and design thinking was IDEO right down the road. And I would say that's a good one, but it's great to hear that obviously there are other communities out there and it sounds like, you know, you you explain it in a way anyone can easily access it. It's not something where you need to think of yourself as an entrepreneur and innovator. It's like sitting down, figuring out the problem, like you said, a comprehensive approach and having multiple stakeholders at the table. Right. You don't have to go to business school for this. This is something if you've gotten yourself through medical school and you've been able to teach yourself all the things that we need to along the way, you can definitely get a firm grasp on this. And of course, like how well you understand something is how well you teach it. So that's when you go back to your program directors and your deans and you pitch this idea to them and see where it goes. If you got any value out of this, please consider doing one of three things. One, tell a colleague about this project. Two, sign up for the curated quarterly newsletter. Three, check out the book on Amazon. It's an easy-to-read, engaging how-to manual for trainees, supported by data and evidence-based solutions. 